0: Today I'm way too interested. We're talking poker. That's right. Poker. <laughs> we're going to make a dumb joke about folding, but let's just get into this.
1: So your hobby went
0: from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's going to find out how you got way too Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Way Too Interested. I'm so excited that you've joined uh, me and the podcast. Uh, I'm, uh, as usual, having a ton of fun doing this. And if you don't know what Way Too Interested is, if this is your first time, this is a podcast where I talk to people that I find interesting uh, about something that they're super passionate about outside of their everyday lives. And then the two of us talk to an expert in that thing. Could be anything, could be grass. Could be a bottle of water, could be uh, the universe, could be anything. Uh, The big secret about this is we always try to get deeper on stuff, try to kind of uncover people's curiosities and why the little tiny things that we care about in life really kind of drive us and make us more interesting people. My name is Gavin Purcell. And again, thank you for being here. Um, Today, we've got a really fun episode. Actually, one of the more interesting ones, an unusual guest, but a kind of a normal topic that we go very deep on as per usual. Um, my guest today is, is a guy named Aaron Dworkin, and he is fascinating. He is a multi-hyphenate, like many of the people that have come on this podcast, but he's a special one. He's somebody who I was connected to through a friend of mine. Um, he's an academic, an entrepreneur a writer, a musician, all of those things at once. There's a lot of interesting things about him, but also he really, really loves poker, which we'll hear about it and you'll get into. Uh, and then later in the show, our expert is the amazing, the incredible um, Phil Gordon, who's a famous poker player. You may have seen him on TV. Uh, you probably definitely know him and his voice when you hear it. Um, he's got a lot of great advice for poker players out there, but also just a lot of interesting thoughts about poker in general. Okay before we get started, I want to give you three interesting things about my guest today, Aaron Dworkin. Okay, number one, as I mentioned, Aaron is one of those perfect way to interested guests that he's done a lot of different stuff. but it all started with classical violin. Uh, he's a musician first and foremost. that's so what he got that's kind of how he got his his start in life. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about that, but he's by far our first classical musician I'm Way Too Interested, so uh, we'll get into it. I wasn't expecting to get into classical musicians this soon, but honestly, that's what's great about this uh, show. I love the variety and different types of people we can have, so that's number one. Number two, and this is a weird one and a big one as well, Aaron is our first ever MacArthur Fellow. Um, That's a high bar I'm not sure if we're going to get to again, but we will keep trying. He received that prestigious honor for starting the Sphinx organization. Uh, That's a group he founded to bring more opportunities to people of color and classical music. And he's had a massive, massive, massive impact on that space. We talk a little bit more about that in the podcast as well. And then finally, number three. Aaron is also a secret nerd, which you know I love. These are the people that like they are near and dear to my heart. I'm, I, I'm not even a secret nerd, I'm a full-on nerd, but like clearly um, he's got deep nerd interests. We talk a little bit about that in the show as well. But more than anything, I love the fact that he actually wrote a science fiction novel. So you can actually go and buy his science fiction novel The book is called Ethos Rise of Malcolm. It's available on Amazon and also addresses some of the stuff that uh, Aaron talks about in his other work. But, you know, I love the fact when people do different things. It's what what Way Too Interested is all about. Um, Okay, let's get into this. Um, Please enjoy my interview with Aaron Dworkin. Uh, Aaron Dworkin, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Way Too Interested. It is great to be here. Thanks so much, Kevin. So, Aaron, you are, I think, one of the most interesting people I've had on here so far. I will say that. Like, I've had a lot of interesting people, but I wanted to just kind of talk a little bit first about the stuff that you've done. And, and I know you've you've got so many really interesting things you've done at such a high level. But I, I made a list of some of the "quote unquote" jobs you've done. Right? You're you're obviously a musician. You're a professor, or a, a, and you're a writer. You're an entrepreneur. You've done a lot of other work around spoken word and all sorts of other things. So, what I wanted to know is like. Uh, the podcast is really about like kind of creative interest can lead to new adventures. Like, can you tell me a little bit about how you got on that path of not just like kind of one thing, but like branching
1: out into all these other things? Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because nowadays I actually teach students how to very intentionally have what I call a portfolio life where you have all these various things that you do and there's ways to structure it. And I feel like I can empower them but myself, no one taught me that and in some ways initially I think I did come into it by almost necessity mm. and you know my background's a little uh, a little wild in that I was born out of all days 9/11. I was immediately given up for adoption and I was adopted by a white Jewish couple. I was born in upstate New York, adopted in New York. my uh, adoptive parents were from Chicago behavioral scientists, neuroscientists, and they already had a birth son my older brother, who's now a uh, cellular biologist uh, at Columbia, so right, all of them science, right? And so, and, and, and white, so white Jewish parents, and there I was, what at least the world viewed as black, even though I came to realize or learn that I was biracial. And so long story short, I grow up, I'm able to start playing the violin when I'm five, and I get just into the arts, into creativity, like that was my thing and how I could express myself. Fast forward 31 years, I'm reunited with my birth parents, my birth father, who's black Jehovah's Witness, my birth mother, who's white Irish Catholic, who ended up getting back together, having another child who they raised, my full sister, who now practices law in New York, Maddie. So basically in the end, I'm a black, white, Jewish, Irish Catholic Jehovah's Witness who grew up playing the violin. And I raise all of that to say that in terms of my creativity, what touches pretty much everything I do in life is actually this sense of diversity. So whether I'm writing a book, whether I'm trying to have social impact, whether I'm simply having fun and very interestingly enough, doing recreational things like playing poker, one of the things that I've always noticed is that the poker table is one of the most diverse spaces I am ever in. And almost at every poker table I sit down at, there is a cross-section of gender even, albeit less, but there's a cross-section of cultural backgrounds, et cetera. So all of those things kind of coalesced, and and relatively early on when I was still in college, I was thinking about these issues of diversity relating specifically to the arts and to classical music, since that had been such a big part of my life, uh, and ended up founding an organization that was able to really grow into a global NGO to affect uh, diversity and equity in the arts. And that's—I mean,
0: obviously—that's probably one of the most, if not the most important, issues we deal with in America right now, especially. And I think—I I think that's incredible. Actually, I would love to dig in on the idea of diversity outside of what people normally think of diversity, which is obviously racial diversity and and making sure or or, or sexuality diversity, like a bunch of. But I, you would also mention the idea of creative diversity, right? Which is a really interesting possible kind of thing to dig on a little bit. To me, is I'm a big fan. Of, I'm one of these people too, where I grew up interested in computers and interested in science stuff and, and really learned a lot, but ended up pursuing more of a creative path myself as well, too. And I just am such a big fan of the roundedness that you get out of pursuing diverse interests in different things. What caused you to like, so say you probably had most success early on, I'm assuming, in music, but what caused you to branch out into these other pathways?
1: Yeah, so I ended up uh, actually initially dropping out of college. I started at Penn State and then dropped out. Uh, I didn't have support from my parents, all of that, long story. And so I got a lot of work experience in that time. And then I came, and then I, after four years off, I came back, finished my undergrad and graduate work in violin performance. So when I came back, I was thinking about the kind of real world that I had been in. And so many people who I saw, who I worked around, who lived for the weekends, lived for the evening, right? They just, they did, their work was work. They did not like it. You got to earn a paycheck. And I was fixated on the idea that I want my work to be something that I love. And when I came back, I was able to be more honest with myself to say, I love playing the violin but I hated practicing. <laughs> and, <laughs>
0: That's what everybody and, feels, right? And, Mostly, yeah.
1: Right? And the reality was, if I wanted that original dream, a concert soloist, or being in the biggest orchestra, et cetera, it required the time in the practice room that I didn't like. I liked spending time in chamber music, with playing with other musicians, et cetera. And around the same time, I got exposed to music by composers of color and all of this, and I started exploring it. And then I felt this very strong drive of, oh, there's this huge inequity related to part of my cultural background. And I often feel driven to try to affect change with things that I see that I'd like to see different. Rather than sit and complain about things, I'm like, well, what can I do to try and help them? So that kind of launched me into then saying, okay, let me try and do this and build this organization. And what happened at a very pivotal point at like 2 o'clock in the morning as I was working on this and realizing I was doing that a lot more than practicing, and liking it a lot more than practicing. I was like, this, this entrepreneurial venture has become my primary instrument, my way to be creative. And so then even after just doing it for a few years and the crazy life of an entrepreneur and, you know, 24 seven, I realized that also, even though this now has become my life's work. That's not all that I want to do. I wanted to tell a story related and in, in, uh, in the film medium, so I made a movie. And you know, and was like, you know, I had all of these ways to express myself through poetic verse. So I wrote a poetry book. So I kind of—it's almost for me like when I have a sense of uh, of either change impact or a sense of creating something, I tend to look at it strategically to make sure how does this fit into my time but then I just do it. And so to me, I think that's led to a life filled with a lot of failures um, and a handful of successes. But when the successes are really big, uh, your failures uh, tend to kind of fade away. My thing about failure, it's funny
0: because I think as a, I'm in my mid forties now, and I think I learned a lot in my twenties and thirties, but I also now really believe that those failures are actually the most valuable experiences I've had, which is, I know a kind of a cliche, but it's the trying that's the part that makes the difference right like it's the trying it's like this is a good example of this podcast like i've been always behind the scenes i've never been like a person that's kind of an on a talent on camera or on audio and for me it's weird right like it's like just but the trying of it i'm learning a lot about myself i'm learning the things that i like and like those are really important things to do and i think going back to what you said about like people who get stuck in these jobs working for the weekend I had an interesting experience as a kid where at 18 I worked after high school. I worked in a fiber plant, a fiber mill. And I remember it was like, you know, it was a really interesting experience because it was okay paying job, but it was a good summer job for me. But I remember meeting all these people who really talked about their boats or talked about things they were gonna do on the weekend. And the one thing I kept coming back to there was them talking about their boats gave them something that was joy. Right. And, and part of it is like that, you know, they may not have the opportunities to be able to go out and do this stuff. And you hope that people who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds will be able to kind of pursue these things at an earlier stage in their life. So maybe open them up, but at least pursuing that thing gives them joy. And like the more that we can kind of cultivate that feeling of like you can pursue something no, almost no matter what it is. But but like going towards the joy, if it's a work thing or if it's a hobby or something like that can make you fulfilled in a way that you may not feel before.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think for me, there is a sense or a drive that everything that I do, I want to kind of have that connection and that sense of joy. I tend to now, everything that I do, and I feel very lucky and blessed that I tend to generally be able to be in this place, is that everything I do has to meet what I refer to as the lottery test and the death test. Oh, what are they? I'm really curious here what they are. So the lottery test is very simple. You know, if I won $100 million in the lottery today, would I still do the same thing tomorrow that I did today? I love that. If there's something where the answer is no, I do everything I can to stop doing it. And everything that I would have done, I tried to do. And then the death test, which is maybe a little more grim and macabre, um, but is the same, you know, if God forbid I learned that, you know, I had some kind of tragic health issue that, you know, time was imminent, would I still do the same thing today? And again, if the answer to that is no, I do something different, I actively try to change it. And whenever there's something new that's introduced to my life, I always apply that to see. And so to me, I literally get up every day and everything I do that, that cuts across this broad cross-section of my life of about 10 to 12 different things fits beautifully. And so for me, that's now something that I actively architect, in some ways kind of fell into it, but I feel one of the most important things I do with my students at Michigan in entrepreneurship is I teach them how to already think about this while they're in college and actively architect their yes. own lives to build these portfolio lives.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, I, that's the secret I wish somebody had told me as say a teenager or a young, you know, early 20s. I also think it's hard for those, sometimes for those people to listen because obviously when you're that age, sometimes you think you know best. Um, actually, before we move on to the topic, I would love to dig in on the idea of like, you know, one some of your work and trying to work to diversify a bunch of different occupations or different things or entrepreneurship, like, do you find, do you try to preach that value across the board to everybody that you run into? Or like, is that something that like, you know, cause I think that's something that we talk about people from different socioeconomic backgrounds or different, you know, people who are at a disadvantage when it comes to the power structures in America, it feels like that's a lesson that would be so valuable to anybody, but especially to them, right? Because, because people who come from a place of um, where other people have a huge advantage over them they're not going to get those lessons from maybe their parents or from their peers as much. And I feel like that's such a valuable thing to hear early in life.
1: Yeah, well, and so I'm a big believer that, you know, anything is possible kind of within reason. And so what I talk talk to my, my students about, and I think is so important, and where entrepreneurship, I think is so empowering, is that in large part, you really can so much is about what you do. But I share with them, this is within the context of these realities in the world that we we know data about who gets access to funding in the nonprofit world we know data right. about who gets access to you know major investments and who gets access to you know venture capital firms and so on and so forth and a lot of that especially in the past year and a half has been changing more than it's ever changed in my entire lifetime which i think is great but the data still at least it's not clear where things are at they might be changing but there's still realities in the world. And so to me, that's where I'm like, okay, so how much work, how much effort do we have to apply to be able to be successful? But with entrepreneurship, you know, I've really thrived and and I love it because for the most part, you know, no one's out there hiring you or telling you what to do. So much is your decision about what to do, how to do it, who to connect with, how to collaborate. And what I find is that when people bring together these entrepreneurial skill sets. is one of the things that I, the very first thing I teach my students, there's no entrepreneur, I'm just entrepreneurial or anything like that. There's a set of skills. If you deploy those skills, you are an entrepreneur. You are creative if you do that. I teach them how to ideate. So, you know, I'm like, yeah, oh, well, that person's just so much more creative, you know, than I am. And I'm like, no, they come up with more ideas. You could come up with more ideas. Let's take an example. Every day now for the next 10 days, you're gonna come up with 10 ideas every day. At the end of 10 days, you're gonna have 100 ideas. 70 to 80 of those ideas, 70 to 80% are gonna suck and are gonna be bad ideas. That's gonna leave you with 20 ideas in basically a little over a week that are potentially viable and of those 20, 10% 10% of them, maybe 2% of your total ideas you came up with are potentially life-changing.
0: It's an unlock, right? That's the thing. It feels like you're unlocking something remarkable for people. I mean, I think you and I both come from this background where like we are able to unlock it for ourselves, but when you teach people to do that, it's like this crazy unlock and they you can see their eyes open in a crazy way, right? Like it doesn't matter who it is because I think a lot of people are told when they're kids you're not creative. You're not a person that can come up with ideas and just, you know, go be an accountant and do whatever. But it opens up
1: your entire world in such a fascinating way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of one of those things. Ultimately, I don't really feel like I teach, you know, anyone really what to do. I teach them how to access. I teach them a set of skills that enables them to bring what they have to the forefront and make it a reality, and because there's such a diversity of what they do, you know, I have students who you know start music festivals and uh, do those. But then some who start a record company and others who start a, a program to help underserved uh, communities to do theater, or you know, there's just a host of uh, of different things. And I'm always amazed at what they come up with because they bring these ideas and change that I never would have thought of. So it's, I, I just consider myself very, very lucky to be able to do the the work that that I do. And that's
0: awesome, man. I'm I'm really I'm just impressed with what your career has been, and I think it's a really awesome career path. So I want to move into what because we're, we're I think we're gonna we're gonna move into our topic a little bit. I did want to also mention that you wrote a science fiction book, which I love because I'm a science fiction nerd. I will just get that out there. It's available on your you can see it on your website. I think uh, really quickly, are you a are you a big sci-fi fan? Is that why you chose to pursue that? Oh too? yeah,
1: so oh, so absolutely. And you know I grew up reading you know Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, Heinlein, etc., and then was always obsessed, of course, with Star Wars and Star Trek. And I do have to say, especially Star Trek, which you know. Also, cutting to diversity, Star Trek and Star Wars, but especially Star Trek. So many barriers were broken. You know, first uh, female black actress, you know, and leading role, and the you know first interracial kiss. You know, all of these types of things. And so you had the ability, and this is what I love about science fiction: the ability to address social issues today, but in a way in the future where. Um, like a lot of times if you're, oh, I want to talk about racial equity or so, you know, you know, potentially a third of our country uh, want to tune out, I don't want to hear that stuff right now. But you put that in the context of a really cool futuristic setting, now all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, I want to hear their story, and right? And it's this one particular alien race versus another. And the issues that we face today are woven in, but in such a way where it's not just in someone's face and is in a way that's entertaining and moving and tells modern day stories, but in these futuristic settings. And so uh, ethos, Rise of Malcolm, uh, was exactly that. It was kind of living out a dream of being able to carry out a story that all takes place in Detroit and Flint, Michigan, uh, in the future. And there I'm using kind of the medium of VR and what has happened with VR and how it has affect, uh, affected people um, and, uh, and this story of, of Malcolm. That's awesome, man. I just, again, it's
0: one of those things where like you took a shot at doing something that you're interested in and and you did it. Like, I think it just goes back to that thing of like, just try, right? Just try. Exactly. You picked a very fun topic, something that's kind of close to my heart, I think will be a really interesting conversation. Please tell me first, state your name, say I am blank uh, and I'm way too interested in what?
1: I am Aaron Dworkin and I am way too interested in poker.
0: Okay, great. So, I mean, I think a lot of people are interested in poker. Obviously, we're kind of past the giant boom of poker where like literally everybody was interested in it. Tell me your poker backstory and kind of how you came to it.
1: Yeah, so it started in some ways so tied in because my life is tied into a lot of nonprofit. You know, I founded nonprofits, things like that. So I'm in Florida uh, with my uh, best friend from high school, and his family. There, they you know were a sponsor of a of a charity poker charity tournament, and they had extra seats. You know, and so they're like, "Yeah, come." So my wife and I, we go and we play in this tournament. And she actually, and and we're literally, I played poker as a, as a kid, you know, kind of for fun, but not Hold'em. And so I hadn't played Hold'em, so we literally are learning Hold'em on the way to this tournament, all that. My wife wins her table, like her breakout table, and I win one of the top prizes, right? So of course, the minute that happens, it's almost like this like bait, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> right it was like the world of poker said aha here we go we're gonna give you that taste of victory um and that's kind of all you need and so my wife she was she liked it and she would play and we started a little home game that kind of thing and we'd have friends over and we would play and she would play but for her interestingly it wasn't kind of relaxing but for me what i found was that I kind of went into this Zen so I could have a long day of work, just crazy, intense, all of these things. And for me to then sit at a poker table for a couple hours was relaxing. Huh? And I found that I just kind of got into a Zen state and I loved it and then tried to get better. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say that uh, I, I haven't been as successful at getting better at poker as I have been at a, at a number of other things in life. So my, I, I still hold out hope. I believe anything is possible, but I haven't put the work in uh, like I have in some other areas of my life. So I suppose like everything else, it takes work.
0: Yeah, I was going to say one of the things I've learned with poker, I have a bunch of questions I want to ask uh, our guest Phil about because like to me, it's such a fascinating game that there's so many things going on. But the thing I keep coming back to with poker for me is it's really a people reading game more than it is like a. Um, there's a lot of math always also involved, too, but. I really love the idea of like how it's about psychology. Like there's such a deep thing there. It's funny you find it relaxing. What can you dig in on that? Like, because when I'm playing poker, especially if I'm playing in a tournament um, and I could draw a pretty good hand, I can feel my heartbeat and it definitely feels like I've hit something. But what what about it is relaxing to you? Like what's what's the background there?
1: Yeah, so I think the first part of it is social um, in that, as I mentioned before, it is one of the most diverse places. When I go out to a restaurant, depending on the restaurant, people are going to usually be relatively homogenous, that kind of thing. And if the restaurant isn't, certainly almost every table in the restaurant is, right? Um, you go out to most other settings, things like that, except for the work, for example, the Sphinx organization that I do, or those types of things, much more diverse. Unfortunately, even going into college cafeterias, you know pre-COVID, you know, just is so much separation and division and everything about my life is the opposite. And literally it's in my DNA. And so I sit at a poker table and usually, you know, there's someone from any number of various cultural backgrounds, Latinx and black, white, and male, female, etc. And so A, I find myself most comfortable in diverse settings. And one of the other things that I've at least loved at, at the poker tables that I have sat at is that there's this honesty authenticity you can say things and you hear things at a poker table you would not hear anywhere (laughs) else in life people talk in this unfiltered way and including about diversity things i pretty much have spent my life working in things at least somehow associated with diversity where you know the language that you use often is so important and you have to be careful especially in academic settings but at a poker table nobody cares people say things that in other settings would be utterly inappropriate right but at the poker table there isn't this ill intent right and so people say things that may be completely whatever may in other settings socially unacceptable but there isn't ill intent and so there's this kind of back and forth and weaving and also at the poker table Everyone's equal, you know. You get the cards you have, and you play the hands that you're dealt, and you know the better player and or luck <laughs> wins out in the end, and uh, and so that that's kind of this comfortability. Huh. Then on the kind of math piece of it, and this could be also why I don't necessarily get better, <laughs> um, and why I've always developed and just had my you know recreation. I don't you know golf. I don't do these. My poker, My recreation is poker. I have a budget. For it, that. <laughs> that's for smart. It. Very, very important. And so I view it as a recreation. And if I end up up in terms of the money that I'm making, great. And I can't just lose more than my budget. Otherwise, I can't go back to the table. And so I find that when I sit, I don't play as disciplined. Mm. In my experience, I would say that maybe it it seems to me two to maybe one to 2% of the players I encounter actually make money regularly at poker. And when I see how they play, I don't want to play poker like ah, that bad. Yeah. Interesting. They, they play like two or three hands an hour. You know, I'm playing, you know, they're play, I'm playing 70 to 80% of my hands, you know. To me, I, I just love that fun. And what to me, where in other settings in life, anxiety is something unwelcomed and unhappy, uh, for me in poker, when you're sitting and you've got that, you know, flush draw and someone makes the big bet on the turn and you're like, all right, what am I going to do here? That adrenaline rush and all of that and are you going to hit your flush or not or whatever it might be? That, I love that adrenaline rush. And I actually, I, I often, I just don't have it on right now, but I, you know, I wear my Apple watch and I've actually tracked my average heart rate, you know, and on days when I play poker, my average heart rate is <laughs> higher, which I'm not sure whether that's good or bad for my health. But for some reason in poker, I actually like that and welcome it. It's almost like that feeling when you get on stage to perform. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Where, yeah, it's the good anxiety.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will be joined by Phil Gordon, our expert. Um, so, we'll be back in just a second. Way too interested. All right. We'll be right back with our expert guest, Phil Gordon. But before we do, I want to take the second to say thank you very much for listening to my podcast this is episode nine, I think, which has been a real fun time. Uh, I've been enjoying getting some feedback on the podcast. Please do go rate it on iTunes and share uh, whatever you have or whatever you've heard. Um, I'm really interested in hearing from my uh, listeners, too. So send me an email if you can. It's all on the website, waytointerested.com. Uh, And before we get back to the interview, I want to shout out all through this uh, first run I've been doing in this space where there might be an ad. I've been shouting out some of my favorite books that kind of talk about some of the things we discuss and way too interested. Uh, Today, I have a book that's kind of interesting. Um, I'm just going to kind of tell you what the title is because it kind of explains what it is. I won't take a ton of time uh, discussing it, but it's something I really enjoyed and I really believe strongly in. The book is called Spark, the Revolutionary New Science of Exercise in the Brain. And there's a third title to it, which is supercharge your mental circuits to beat stress sharpen your thinking lift your mood boost your memory and more basically this book does a really good job of 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 taking that idea of you know you don't want to exercise you don't want to feel good you're convinced that um you're gonna feel worse if you go out and exercise and that when you do it and you come back you generally feel better this book gives you all the scientific reasoning behind it I find myself often struggling. I love exercise. I want to do it and I know will make me feel better, but I have a hard time motivating myself to go do it. Reading this book really reminds you how much of a difference it can make, not just in your body, but in your brain. Like I think that's the thing that is often underestimated in terms of what we're looking at. Anyway, go get it. It's by a guy named John J. Rady, MD with Eric Hagerman. Um, but the book's called Spark, The Revolutionary New Science of Exercise in the Brain. And now let's get back to the show. Um, we're about to be joined by Phil Gordon, uh, poker extraordinaire. And Aaron has some remarkably great questions for him. All right. Enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. We are now joined by our poker expert, Phil Gordon, who is quite the expert. He's had a, a long poker career. Um, Phil, thanks for joining us.
2: Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, so before we, before I kind of let Aaron kind of go with his questions about poker, which I'm sure he has quite a few, Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of like what A got you into poker and then kind of like, you know, where your poker career is or where it went? Because I know it's gone quite a few ways.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I turned pro in uh, 2001 and I, I'm a computer scientist by training. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of startups. I'm, I'm CEO of a, a software startup now called Prompt.io, but... Uh, as soon as, you know, after college, um, I moved to California. And in California, there are legal card rooms up and down the state. And so very quickly, uh, I ran into one of the card rooms and uh, just fell in love with the game and, and started uh, studying a lot and writing computer simulations and such before that was popular. Uh, I fell into a, a group of Stanford computer scientists that also love the game. And we had a home game, you know, like twice a week, every week for... Well, it's now been uh, 30, 30 years that that's wow. happened. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Still, all my best friends. Um, and so we kind of, uh, you know, took it quite seriously, and but still, you know, had a great deal of fun. And then, um, somewhat randomly, I, I found myself at the final table, the main event of the World Series of Poker, the biggest poker tournament in the world. In two thousand one, I won a crap ton of money. In that tournament, and the players back then, uh, Aaron, you know, they're they're a lot better now. They weren't very good back then. Um, <laughs> you know, not not many of them knew math, and you know, none of the books were out, and like um, you know, all the TV shows with all the superstars and all the online material didn't exist, and so the players really, you know, they kind of sucked, and it was easy pickings there for three or four years. And then, of course, I got invited to host some of the TV shows. Uh, I was host of uh, Bravo's Celebrity Poker Showdown. I was ESPN Poker Analyst for about five years. Uh, I did a you know host of other shows on Fox and ABC and stuff like that. And then uh, I had kids and got married. And that, <laughs> that changes things uh, quite substantially. Uh, so I retired from poker in 2011 haven't played, a, a you know, a major tournament or anything since still play with my boys, you know, my, my home game, uh, still play a lot of charity events. I host a lot of, you know, uh, high profile, uh, charity poker fundraisers, but you know, my playing days at the top level are, are pretty much over. That's
0: awesome. what a, that's an amazing story. All right. All right, Aaron, let's, let's hear it. What do you got?
1: Right, right. Well, first and foremost, I think I want an invitation to that home game. So we'll have to figure out. Well, have
2: to well out. I'm going to judge yeah. your skill level based on this conversation. And if you're a big enough uh, mark, we'll be happy yeah. to invite you.
1: <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, and so to give you, you know, a little bit of said, you know, I kind of fell in love with the game and, you know, I was, you know, uh, invited and got to to play in a charity tournament. And actually did okay, you know, ended up one of the top winners in that and that just gave me the bug and from there uh, began to play more. And what happened is that was right around the time when charity rooms were becoming legalized in Michigan. Uh, and so uh, you know, I wasn't really thrilled, didn't really want to go into the casino and all that, and especially here it was smoke and all that, and smoking and stuff. So, I had loved the charity poker room, and so and also it put in the back of my mind. And not only is this fun, but it's also helping, you know, to, <laughs> to the local right, it kind of gives you a little bit of that supposed feel good, uh, and so so i began playing you know pretty regularly and really have fallen in love with it and so of course my my biggest kind of first question relates to how i could possibly advance my skill level right so i ultimately have a goal or desire to to either cash in the main event, or to win, you know, some circuit event, uh, haven't even come close to that. I have played the main event twice. Oh, great! And lasted uh, to day two is <laughs> the longest that have lasted, and of course went out on aces. Oh uh, no! Uh, no. You know, also the,
2: typical, yeah. Right, right, typical. exactly. Yeah. So,
1: so maybe I'll share this this hand with you, and then say, okay, so you know, what can what can I do to kind of improve my skill level? So, aces, you know. Uh, End up with aces and uh, pre-flop, uh, you know, there's three times big blind, raise, two callers. And I smooth call, right? Because I'm like, I just want to, you know, sit on my ace to see how things go. Flop comes seven, nine, jack. There's raise, fold, and I re-raise. And then they re-raised me back. Uh, And of course, I'm like, let me just, I want to, you know, I was maybe, I don't know, six hours in, something like that, so I'm like, so I shove, And of course, they flopped a straight, you know, they were in there with 10-8. And so I'm like, and of course, just feel like an idiot. And that's it. And I, in my mind, was like, in this rainbow flop, I'm not going to fold i just not going to do it yeah. with aces. And so that was kind of highly unwise. But my curiosity is kind of with most other things in my life. I can do I originally a trained violinist. I know how you practice your scales. You do these exercises. You're going to get better, so on and so forth. What I have not been able to figure out, and I've done, you know, you know, read a couple books, that kind of thing, uh, and you know, and tried to watch and listen to people like you, um, and you specifically, and uh, but maybe it's that I don't follow the advice. But I'm just wondering, kind of, for someone like me who can't put in the time, a, and here is I would say the second thing that the people who I do see win with any consistency play in a way that for me would not be fun. It seems like they play maybe 10 to 15% of their hands. If that I'm playing, I'm playing 70 to 80%. Uh, so, to yeah. Laugh. Yeah. So, so maybe that's it. Maybe your first answer is stop playing 70 to 80% of your hands. Fine. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, how long do we have in the pocket? <laughs> <laughs> you take take no. your time. We'll be, fine. um, okay. So, um, I don't, I don't, it's hard to figure out where to start. Uh, Let's go back to your aces hand, because I think that's indicative of one potential leak that you have in your game. And, and that is, uh, you know, a lot of amateur players get, they want to slow play their hand. Like you did with the, with, like you did with this aces. And, and what I used to say on TV a lot is slow play is fast death. You know, you really don't want to play a lot of multi-way pots and, and no limit hold them. You know, you, you really want to play heads up in position. Like if you looked at all the hands and all the money that I've won over the course of playing poker, a hefty percentage of it has has been in pots where I have been heads up in position.
0: Wait, can you explain Sorry, what in position means just for people who may not know that?
2: Yeah. So I'll be last to act on every round of betting. And, and it is such a powerful concept to be last to act, right? Because you have so much more information and you can put pressure. And if your opponent checks, you can check behind. If you don't like your hand or if they're showing weakness, you can pounce on them and, you know, put in a big raise, right? Uh, so much easier to win bigger when you have the best hand and lose less when you have the worst hand when you're playing in position. But playing multi-way pots, like think of the greatest players in the world, whether it's Helmuth or Daniel Negreanu, or I don't care who you think it, is, Phil Ivey, whoever you think it is, right? Even those players have really hard time playing multi-way, you know, multi-way pots, especially in tournament poker. Like, just just always try to think about how can I get this hand heads up in position. And if you start organizing your game around that principle, you're not going to find yourself in these multi-way pots. You're not going to find yourself. Calling from the big blind with a crap hand, you know, in a five-way pot, hoping to get lucky. Like, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, it's just like th- those are those are real leaks, I-, I think. So you know, a don't slow play those aces. You need to raise that raise that hand and raise it enough so that you're going to get at most one caller. You want to play that hand heads up. You you want to play that hand heads up in position against one player. And if you, raised, if you raise and everyone folds, so be it. But, you know, slow playing there is just asking for trouble. You know, anytime they're going to put all their chips in, they're going to have you beat. So another, another thing to think about, and, and this, this is actually something that you can practice. So you asked me, what can I do to get better? Right? One of the things that you can do is have a discipline about the way that you play. And I want you to think about, you know, there are only a couple of ways to make money at the table. When you're, when you're playing in a poker hand, you can make money by getting your opponent to put chips in the pot when you have the best hand. And you can also make money by getting them to throw away a hand that's better than yours. But really, those are the only two things that can happen that are going ha- to have you making money. And so when you're betting and you're in a hand, I want you to, to really give some thought. What hands do I expect that are worse will put money in the pot? Or what hands that are better than mine will fold, right? And if you can't think of really good examples on both sides of the equation there, your bet probably doesn't have much value. And in fact, your bet is probably giving away value, right? So when, you know, in this particular hand, I don't know all the specifics and the stack sizes and all that, right? All that stuff really matters and the tendency of the players. But, you know, when you, when, when you bet and they raise you and you go all in, they're only going to call you but let's think about that hand. Like, are they going to throw away? Are they going to call you with any hand that you can beat? Mm, right. Probably not, right? They're, unless they're just maniacs, they're not calling you with ace jack.
1: Right, right. That's exactly what, right. and that was probably my problem. they're not
2: calling you with ace jack. They're gonna, but they, but they will call you. They're and they're not going to throw away any hand that you that that um, that you can. They're not going to throw away any hand that beats you. They're not throwing away two sevens. They're not throwing away two nines. They're not throwing away two jacks. And they're not throwing, they're certainly not throwing away 10, eight. Right. And, and so, you know, and they might not throw away jack nine, right. Uh, two pair. So there's, there are no hands that they're going to throw away that you're better than, and there are no hands that are going to call where you're the best hand. Huh. So your bet kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> i mean just to be honest like well, that, I, I don't know you but you seem like the kind of guy that could take that kind of oh. with a smile so i'll go ahead and put it out there
1: i absolutely i can't i can't because i spent a long walk of shame walking out of that massive hall realizing how stupid yeah. <laughs> that
2: was. but but when you're playing in these charity tournaments really i want you to take a take a minute and i want you to you know when you're putting chips in the pot okay what better hands are going to fold or what worse hands are going to call right and and if you start thinking that way your your bets will be more um will will inevitably have more value and like i said if you can't think of good examples on both sides of that equation you're probably you know you, you might think twice about putting more chips in the pot
1: yeah Totally. Well, wow. I literally think I've I've just learned more about my <laughs> poker game and how I can improve it than <laughs> my past decade of poker playing. So yeah,
2: I, I heard you talking about uh, the heart rate thing. Um, and back in the day, I played a tournament. I think it was on Fox Sports at Thanksgiving Day, something like. So, there's a one day, one day, twenty five k buy in big tournament, whatever. I think it was at Red Rock. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure, but they but they made us wear heart monitors. Oh, and they put it on the TV so you could see what the heart rate was going. Oh my for. God, that's the worst experience I've ever had in my life. Wow. I, mean, I, came, I ended up winning the tournament. Like I, I, think I won seven. It was like my biggest tournament score ever. I won seven hundred thousand in the tournament. But when I got home and watched the replay, oh my God, my heart rate was like the the commentators were like, oh my God, I think Phil Gordon's going to die. He's 170. <laughs> Like like every time you bluff, every time I was bluffing every time I was like in any kind of significant pot, my heart rate just spiked like crazy. And it was like, you know, it's debilitating to watch that on on air. (laughs) You feel like you're doing an okay job of like concealing it at the table. But Wow, that was that was not a fun that was not a fun broadcast to rewatch. Even though I ended up winning the thing,
1: that's fascinating. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to figure out whether that's good or bad for our health. <laughs> so.
0: by the way, that's a good uh, transition. My, I was I was saying to um, uh, earlier, my wife is a, a body language expert, right, and really studies body language. I'm really interested to know. When you're at the table, two things: one, how much of it is math versus how much of it is people reading, and sure. then like, how much can you actually get out of reading people's body language at the table?
2: So, first of all, I'm uh, I I fear for you, Gavin.
0: Um, <laughs> Trust just, me, I've been in the position. It's hard.
2: It's hard. <laughs> that's not a good thing. But um, yeah, so a lot of people make a big deal about the tells. Being observant is certainly one of the most important qualities that you can have at the poker table, but. People make way too much of the that stuff. When I'm teaching to, or when I'm giving seminars to like at a, at a charity tournament or something, I talk to people. This question often comes up and I give them a story that I'll relay here. Uh, when I was hosting Celebrity Poker Showdown, I got invited to a lot of Hollywood home games um, and that was very good for my bankroll. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the home games had quite a few members of the cast of friends. Um, you know, this was... Geez, two thousand six, two thousand seven, right? Like I mean, peak,
0: peak friends, basically,
2: peak, kind of peak, yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I, I'm in this big pot, and the game's pretty big because um, they have they had a lot of money, <laughs> and still do. But uh, I'm, anyway, I get into a big pot uh, with uh, actor Hank Azaria. You know, familiar with Hank? Sure, yeah, Simpsons, Simpson's voice and Hank's very a well great heard. guy, an amazing yeah. poker player. Um, you know, one of the most kind and generous people I've ever, I've ever met. Um, but I'm over at Hank's house. We're playing with the cast of friends. We're in a big poker game and it's early on in the evening and, you know, I've got like queen 10 of spades and the board is spade, spade, spade. Right. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling locked. Right. Um, but we start going at it and I bet and he raises and I raise and he goes all in for, you know, 10K or I don't even remember how much it was. It was a lot of money. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I got to lay this hand down. Like, I got the third best hand here. Like, uh, you know, what the hell's going on? But when he when he was betting, his hands were shaking like a leaf. Like, <laughs> right. Which is typically, you know, your, your wife would tell you, Gavin, that that's typically an adrenaline response. It's unconscious, they can't, they're not doing it on purpose, right? It's an adrenaline response that's typically associated with having a freaking monster hand. And so I thought forever and I was like, well, Hank's not trying to bluff me out of this thing. Like, I guess I have to fold. And I folded oh, no. and he turned over a stone cold bluff. <laughs> wow. And I'm like, I can't believe I just folded this this third best hand, your hands were shaking like a leaf. I thought you had a monster. And he goes, yeah, I was out drinking until five o'clock in the morning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you never know what is actually going on. So, you can so my, read them, the, you know The
2: point is, on. is that physical tells are very unreliable. You know, all right. the stuff about, oh, his ear twitched and his, you know, pupils died, all that stuff's bullshit. Um, huh. But, uh, you know, really what you should be looking for are tells from actors. When someone is acting, they're, they're acting in, a, in an effort to elicit a response. And typically the pattern that you'll see is someone is acting weak. When they're strong and they act strong when they're weak. Right? When they're when they're strong and they act weak, they're acting weak in an effort to try to get you to put chips in the pot. The old oh, I guess if yeah, I lose right. the pot, I can just go to a movie, right? That that guy's got the nuts. Right, right, right yeah. But if you can identify an actor and and try to figure out what response they're trying to elicit, you can often disappoint them.
1: And is there, to kind of follow up on this, relating to luck, you know, you were talking about how the quality of players, it seems right, and the quality of, of play has just really increased because there's so much more information and knowledge and like kids are starting out and like practicing and, and learning all the math and so on and so forth. Would you say that because the level of the quality of the play has gone up so much that now has, is more attributed to kind of luck or good runs or bad runs or how, what level do you think is, is attributable just simply to luck?
2: Well, if two players are of equal skill and they are playing against each other, right, then the outcome will largely be determined by luck, Right. But the fact of the matter is, um, you know, when you're playing in a poker tournament, you know, unless you're truly horrid, there will be players at the table that are worse than you. And most of the time, you should be targeting those players and staying the hell out of the way of the pros or the players that are better. Right. And so when I sit down at the table, Aaron, one of the first things that I do, and maybe you should try this at your next charity tournament is like, okay, newbie, 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 super good player, you know, what, and you just go around the table and you can quickly kind of guess or theorize or maybe you have experience with the players. And when the good players are in, play tighter. Mm-hmm. You're not, I can promise you, Aaron, you're not going to win money from me playing playing your Queen Jack offsuit out of position. <laughs> you, know, you, you might get lucky and win a pot or two and have a good story to tell. But right. over the course of the long term, you are not going to win money from me when I raise from middle position and you call that with that crappy queen jack offsuit from the small blind, like I know you want to do, <laughs> right? You're not going to win money over the long term, right? And so when the good players are in, you get out, and when the bad players are in, you make excuses to get in.
1: Hmm. Interesting, cool, right? Uh, definitely, definitely take that. And and so here's something else that I ended up really falling into in a couple of the charity rooms they they have it and and i'll play sometimes uh with it but plo i got the i got the plo bug because oh, so the, the i mean it's just it's just like hold a as i think that 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 adrenaline rush you have because the variability is through the roof I mean, that just so just kind of curious, other than just trying to play absurdly tight. And of course, I never, ever, ever win with aces double suited. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, curious, any of your thoughts about, about PLO? I, I
2: love PLO. And I was actually going to suggest that if you're unhappy about having to fold in Texas Hold'em, you know, there's nothing I can do to help you win if you're going to play 70% of your hands. Like, <laughs> I, honestly, like we, we, we might as well give up. Because just too, it's impossible. It's too many hands. You're just playing way too many hands, and you're playing crap hands out of position. And like, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to play and play well, and have a chance to win, we could talk about hold'em, and I could help you. I could help you get there for hold'em. But you're going to have to commit to playing far, far fewer hands uh, than you're probably wanting to. Hey, On, real quick, you know,
0: what's what's PLO? Just so I understand, what is, I, I don't, I don't uh, limit Omaha. Oh, okay. Can you describe that game? Because actually, I don't know what it is. Is it so just it's, is very,
2: it... it's very similar to Texas Hold'em, but you get four cards instead of two to start. And you must use exactly two from your hand and three from the board. Got it. Right. And so you've got a bunch of different, you know, combinations there. You know, in Texas Hold'em, you can use, you know, four from the board and one from your hand and two from your hand and three from the board. Or if you're really desperate, I guess you could use all five from the board. Not, not, not a recommended strategy but it happens occasionally. But in PLO, you always have to use two from your hand and three from the board.
1: Mm, Okay. Interesting. But
2: because you've got four cards to start and there's so many more combinations, you know, a lot more hands are playable in PLO than they are in in Texas Hold'em. You know, uh, hands like, you know, five, six, seven, nine can be, you know, can be really good hands in PLO, but a five, seven in in Texas Hold'em sucks. Because you've got, the, you know, all those straight possibilities and you've got four cards that can match the flop and like all kinds of good things can happen when you have those kind of runs. So it's a, it's a great game. You get to play a lot more hands. There's a lot more action. I think PLO is one of the games that where, you know, if you're aggressive and you can get the money in, you're almost never too far behind. Right, right. In Texas Hold'em, as you've experienced, like that hand with aces where you had about a 1% chance to win. Right. After all the money went in, that'll never happen to you at PLO. Right. Right. You almost always, like, you almost always have some sort of chance to win. Um, yeah. Unless it's just a real super cooler or something. But yeah, uh, it's a great game. It's super fun, fast paced, uh, difficult game to learn and, and play well. But, you know, if you like to play a lot of hands, and it seems like you do, Aaron, uh, you know, I, I would consider, I, I would, I think that's a, a place where you could uh, continue to invest some hours and, and have some fun with it.
1: Cool, cool. And do you think even the, the PLO tournaments that, that, that I might stand a, a better chance there? Or if I have that goal out there of either, you know, yeah. winning some kind of small sure. tournament, or at least cashing in the main.
2: So the, the players that are really good at PLO are really, really good. And there are fewer of them, fewer PLO players than hold them. You know, that being said, I I think that the structure of the game gives bad players a better chance to not bad. I'm not saying you're a bad player. Gives <laughs> players with less experience. Okay. Let me rephrase that. Um, pretty soon, you're going to ask me to play the piano, and I'm going to and I'm going to get criticized like crazy. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I consider myself an emerging player. Yes. Oh, that's <laughs> a good way to look at it. Yeah, emerging players will have a better chance to win. And, you know, in PLO in the short term, you can catch lightning in a bottle easier, I think, at PLO than you can, you know, in Texas Hold'em. Yeah. The, the skill level that because of the game and, and, you know, there's so many more possibilities. The best you're going to do is probably get your money in, you know, 70, 30, you know, where you're a 70% favorite to win. But that's good for the, for the bad player, right? Or the emerging player, as you put it, right? The emerging player will almost always have a 30% chance to suck out. Right. Um, yep. And in Texas Hold'em, that's certainly not the case. Right. Yeah, totally. You can have someone drawing really bad in Texas Hold'em.
1: And in Hold'em, are you think like the, the people who, you know, if you want to kind of consistently win and be actually a, at least a good player, um, are you talking like 20, 15, 20% of your hands? Or it really less?
2: depends on the, on the table itself, right? The tighter the table plays, the looser you can play. And if the table's playing tight, then, you know, if the table's playing tight, then you can play loose. And if the, player, if the table's playing loose, like most of these charity tournaments are, then tight is right. Like, mm-hmm. you should be playing fewer hands. Uh, competing against that is the structure of the charity tournaments that you're playing in. Very often, they'll have a kind of ridiculous uh, blind structure where the blinds are going to go up every 20 minutes. And, you know, pretty soon, you're going to find yourself short-stacked. Or everyone at the tournament will find themselves short stacked, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. You yeah. know,
2: where an hour into the tournament, the average big blind, you know, the average stack size is maybe 10 or 15 times a big blind. Right. Yeah. Playing those short stacks well can improve your overall results. And what I tell all my, you know, what I've told all my students and, you know, pretty, pretty much locked by the math is that if you find yourself with eight times a big blind or less and you're going to play your hand, you should just move in you know, and maybe even 10 times a big blind. Right. And and if your hand's not good enough to move in with, go all in with, then your hand's probably not worth playing, um, in, in those short stacks, in those short stack scenarios. Right. But I see a lot of people like they're just, you know, they get down to like three or four times a blind and someone went, then they limp in, like, are you kidding? You know, or even eight times a big blind and they'll limp in and someone will raise and they'll throw their hand away. And I just want to Right. Uh, yeah. It's yep. that's not that's not a good look, right? Totally. So, you know, apply maximum pressure, utilize your stack. Don't be afraid to go broke. But if you think you're you know you got the best hand, stick it in. And you know, if they get lucky, so be it. But you'll give yourself a chance to to double up and you know and and be a force in the tournament and you know, and otherwise you get to go to the bar a little bit earlier. Right, right. And do you think it's cause I love cause you're also you're giving me the honest uh, the
1: honest deal here. Do you think it's it's realistic that if I could apply some of this discipline and some of these things and, you know, you know, prepare and train a little bit more, that it is a realistic possibility that it could cash in the main?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And no no question about it. You know, it's a tough tournament, but they're paying 15 percent of the field these days. Mm-hmm. You, you're not going to, I don't think, so let me amend that. I don't think you can cash if you're going to play 70% of your hands. <laughs> right. right yeah.
0: We've established that, that, that now, that, I feel that, like. But, <laughs> but, already,
2: that's, but, it, but if you're willing to play tight, you know, uh, tight aggressive poker and, and try to get heads up in position and, and avoid the good players and target the weak players, right? And be disciplined about your approach. Then absolutely, there's there's no question in my mind that you can cash in the main event and even make a deep run. Um, and there's no question that you can win a circuit event or make a final table at the circuit event too. E- even as an emerging player, you'll have enough skills that you know if a couple of things break your way, uh, and you're playing sound fundamental poker, that you'll be in good shape. Now, uh, you know a lot of times the the leaks are pretty easy to plug. You know when someone raises you know, a a good player raises, get the hell out of, don't be calling them with like, you know, your queen jacks and your king queens and your king tens and stuff like that, particularly when you're out of position. Like, you know, those are just folding hands. You know, I like to I like to think that I have the best hand and if they want to win the pot, they're going to have to get lucky and flop something great. I don't want to be the guy that puts my chips in the pot thinking, oh my God, I got to get really lucky here and Mm -hmm. flop a monster or I'm in trouble. So it's that discipline that, that I think, um, you know, it's hard to fold. I I, I know. I mean, particularly, you know, you're at the charity tournament and whatever. I, you know, you want to play a hand. You want to see a flop. Maybe something good will happen, right? I, I want to, to help the charity. Yeah, the money yeah, goes to know, a good I'm cause. Helping. Yeah, it's for the kids.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hey, I have a question, uh, Phil, for you. So I've read some books on this stuff, but mostly like the story-based books, like Positively Fifth Street. and Colson, White, book, yeah. Col- Col- Colson Whitehead's book is really good, too, which I really love. Um, is there a book that's readable that is a strategy book? Because one of the things I, I, I bought a strategy book once, I can't remember what it don't, might, I don't think it was the Doyle Brunson one, but like I opened it up and it was just like, it felt like I was, like I was in like, yeah. you know, college math class and it just wasn't for me. Is there a book to look out for?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'd be happy to send you my green book. I think that's probably the, the kind of what you're looking for. Short chapters written for, you know, merging players, you know, that's the one that I've I've written four four books on the on the subject. That's the one that I'm most proud of, and is you know sold hundreds of thousands of copies and been translated awesome. in a bunch of languages. But I'll send you one, um, and and Aaron as well. I think Dan Harrington's books are are really good as well, and and great for emerging players.
0: What is it? What if I should ask this? Just because so if people are the nerdy super computer science types. Is there a book that's like? the system book now? Like, is there, is there, or is there something yeah. that people read and they say like, this is the one?
2: Not so much anymore. I think the, the, you know, the current, um, the current gig for the world, you know, for the world-class players is like playing game theory optimal. Yeah. Um, and it's all simulation driven and there are a bunch of training sites, you know, websites that you can subscribe to that will basically take your two cards and tell you what to do Every time, pretty much in, in every situation, to make yourself pretty much unbeatable, um, if you play this game theory optimal strategy, and talk about not having fun, Aaron. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's what I right. think. That's my problem. Uh, well, I'm not sure you have much fun with that game theory optimal stuff, um, you know. I, but uh, I, I think you could, I think you could improve your your um, your basics and fundamentals really quite easily. And still have fun. Like we can get you down to maybe forty percent of your hands and playing most of those in position. I think you'll have a a much better chance. Still get to play, you know, a a lot of hands, which which seems important. But it'll give you a much better chance to to actually win or make that final table or last a little bit longer.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, that sounds. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Because there really is just something. I just. I love the game. I love sitting there and the feel of it. Oh and, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really, uh, it's really something else.
2: Yeah. We've missed that, you know, uh, with COVID and everything has been, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard to go to a card room. Like I've got, un- you know, my, my youngest son is still unvaccinated. Like, you know, my wife doesn't want me leaving the house, much less going to a card room and sitting with a bunch of you know, a yep. bunch of random folks. Um, totally,
1: totally. And for
2: sure, I wasn't wanting to go either.
1: Cause also the, all of a sudden, all the things that I like about it, but that sitting wearing masks massive, massive, yeah. mask between you and everybody and stuff. I'm like the whole social thing that I love about it has just had to we'll be uh, back soon.
2: Yeah. yeah. Totally. We'll be, so, we'll be back soon.
1: Uh, is there anything else there you wanted to ask? I think we'd wrap it up pretty quickly here. That's no. I'm gonna I clearly I'm gonna have to talk to Phil offline about how to get some uh, one-on-one my next main event. So it's
0: (laughs) that's awesome. Oh, wait, Phil, before we go, I do ask my expert guests, is there anything that you're kind of way too interested in outside of poker right now, outside of your expertise? Is there one particular topic you can't stop thinking about? Chess. Wow. Interesting. Yeah,
2: I, I discovered I'd never played chess. I thought chess was kind of a stupid game, honestly, because you know, all the information sitting right there in front of you. Like I, I, I kind of like the psychology element of poker and, you know, trying to figure out what people have, but I can see what you've got. Right. I I mean, it's sitting right there in front of me, but uh, at the start of the pandemic, I kind of stumbled into it and I'm addicted to it. Um, my wife makes fun of me. I watch chess videos all the time. I'm watching YouTube. I'm studying. I've bought courses. I've bought, I've got a coach that I take lessons from on Sunday morning. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of sick. Um, is there and money yet, in chess? Yeah, I would you- call myself an emerging player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you bet is chess a betting game or just for fun? Mostly? Oh,
2: so, so chess is one of those games where if you're just a little bit worse, you can't win. Mm,
1: interesting.
2: Uh, right. I mean, if you're just a little bit worse than your, you know, 10 year old son, for instance, um, He's going to crush you, and you have almost no chance to win. Um, so no there's, money. <laughs> there's no luck in that game whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm addicted to chess, and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, learning, a new, learning a new game. And I'm getting better slowly. And actually,
1: Phil, Phil, you know, one of the things, too, that I really like just kind of learning more about your background separate from poker was actually the – uh, just the nonprofit and, and philanthropic yeah. things that you've involved in, especially supporting cancer issues and all that. Cause my my main professional life is all really around, you know, just the the nonprofit sphere and philanthropy and all of that. And so it's just it was awesome to see you so clearly committed to that. Well
2: so. ne- next time you're uh you know doing an important event for one of those uh, for one of those organizations, think about doing a poker event and I'd be happy to come and host and um, awesome. And I'll sit you on my right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can have the no, it's all for on, charity, right? It's for charity. You can have my seat on the right, and you better bring a couple of extra hundreds uh right. to, to, for the donation, you know, but we, we, we could have some fun with it. See, and now
1: I know. So my 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 name on the Poker table, my nickname, everyone calls me Maverick, and they're like, oh, I want Mav on my right. <laughs> yeah the bad thing we'll make make it happen
2: Uh, but but honestly like that's been uh, a real joy i think i've hosted 500 plus charity poker tournaments in the Uh, last 20 years
1: Uh
2: and uh, raised about 50 million dollars wow
0: impressive um, that's incredible
2: yeah Um, and met some really awesome people doing it you know so um you know still still doing you know still doing a bunch of those I think my first my first one back since COVID is uh, and is coming up next month for the Tiger Woods Foundation. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, well, uh, awesome and a great great foundation that uh, supported Sphinx, our organization. Yeah, oh, they're, That's they're amazing. amazing. Yeah.
0: Um, before we go, uh, each of you want to tell people kind of like where to find you online, or if there's anything to shout out. Aaron, do you have some place that people can find
1: you? Yeah, sure. So the Sphinx, which, you know, is the organization that I had founded, you can definitely check out if you just Google Sphinx organization, you know, that will uh, come up. And then also just everything for me from my site, AaronDworkin.com. Great. And Phil,
2: how about you? Yeah, I'm uh, at PhilNoLimits on Twitter. Uh, not very active. And uh, PhilNoLimits.com is my website. Also, you know, remarkably out of date. Um, <laughs> but, too, much uh, yeah. Yeah. Too, too much chess. Yeah, too much chess. Yeah. I'm, I'm pulling No limits on the chess sites too if you want to come and crush me there
0: oh that's awesome all right thanks to both of you guys for joining me i appreciate it's it it's a pleasure As to meet you
2: both and uh thank you aaron uh please let me know if we can collaborate on a charity poker tournament i think it'd be a lot of fun and uh gavin aaron i'll, I'll send you both books uh get your address offline that's awesome. awesome thanks so much phil really appreciate it and gavin thanks so much
0: absolutely all right bye guys all right, that's it. Another episode of Way Too Interested in the Books. Thank you to the Gregory Brothers for doing my theme song. Thank you to Eric Johnson for helping produce the podcast. And thank you most of all to you for listening. Um, again, as I mentioned before, please, please, please share Way Too Interested with somebody that you think might be interested in it. At me on Twitter, at Gavin Purcell, and I'm more than happy to chat about the podcast. I would love to hear from people who listen to it and enjoyed episodes of it and whatever I can do to kind of open the door to more people hearing the show. It's been super fun making this. I really like it. Um, I'm going to keep doing it. I hate to tell you if you're not a fan, so hate watch or hate listen if you want. I'm having a good time, suckers. (laughs) What am I talking about? Anyway, nobody's hate listening to this. If you're listening to this, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, Have a wonderful, wonderful day and come back next week for the next episode. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.